0: Thanks, Jose. I really do want you, brothers and sisters, to pray with me. Father, in the heavens, we appeal to you as disciples of Yahshua, praying in his name and through his blood. Um, I ask, Father, that you bring to remembrance everything that i prepared that is important to you, everything that uh, I say that is uh, of your spirit, of your wisdom, cause it to penetrate deep into our hearts those things that are foreign to the spirit of truth cause them to fall by the wayside. I especially ask, Father, that you anoint uh, and, and empower with grace uh, members of the fellowship who can come to me later if I've said anything out of order and can challenge me on that. We overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb, Father, and by the word of the witness we speak. I ask you count us all who are within the sound of my vice or affected by these words. Count us all, Father, covered by Yahshua's blood. Worthy of supernatural protection. Grant only that good come about as a result of this material and no evil. In Yahshua Messiah always. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen indeed. Brothers and sisters, I'm Brother Michael Bannock from Fulton, Missouri. All the grace of Yahshua be yours. title of my remarks today is Your Shortcuts and Evasions. This is supposed to be a challenging message. I may go too fast. You have to know your Bible well to follow along. But I'm with people called by Yah's name, and typically they are pretty good with their Bible. I normally don't talk about the genesis of my remarks, but I think it's worth it today. Um, I have been, uh, I have been as of late, challenged by the the principle of the true cost of things. A great theologian from uh, Germany, the Nazi era, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He um, wrote a book called Discipleship. He's known as the preacher who stood up to Hitler. He was uh, hung in a concentration camp about three weeks before liberation. And the book is so compelling that when it was translated to English, some of the English translators rendered it as the cost of discipleship. Not just discipleship, but the cost of it. Because he lays out for you the full plan of uh, teaching there in the Sermon on the Mount. And verse after verse, you have to count the cost. What is the true cost of things? What is the true cost of that marriage you're contemplating? What is the true cost of that project you've got in mind, that career choice, that business plan? What is the true cost of that project you're taking on at home? What is the true cost of that vacation you're gonna take? What is the true cost of that ice cream cone? I found that, I'm at a point in my life now where I just get an ice cream cone in Kingdom City. I gain 10 pounds by the time I get to Fulton. (laughs) And And it takes a month to burn it off, okay? What's the true cost? So the one I'm focusing on today is the shortcuts in time. People are trying to reduce their costs in time. There'll be some mention here and there of resources in general in between the lines. But shortcuts in time. Now, shortcuts as a path to efficiency is good. We don't want to waste resources. We don't want to waste time. We are stewards of this planet. Let man have dominion. We get that. But shortcuts that offload duty or hurt others is a sin. We're going to talk about shortcuts in the Bible, shortcuts in real life, places where you don't want shortcuts. We're going to talk about shortcuts in industry, the commercial world, and shortcuts in society. Some of this will be obvious. Some of this won't be obvious. But I do want you to leave here thinking about what's when I invoke a shortcut... Am I creating a problem for somebody else? Am I offloading my sacred duty on someone else? Let's look at the first shortcut in the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter three, verse four to five. And the serpent said unto the woman, "You shall not surely die, for Elohim doth know that in the day you eat thereof, they're talking about that fruit, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as Elohim, knowing good and evil." He is promising them a shortcut to divinity. You're going to be like the Almighty. Go ahead, eat that fruit. You're going to be just like him. You'll know good and evil for yourself. Observant Bible students have said this for, for, you know, like forever. The devil's inviting them to learn about good and evil for themselves, right and wrong for themselves. Note how the serpent defines the divine nature, knowing good and evil for yourself. I don't need no law. I don't need no commandments. I can figure this out for myself. Let's take a look at Satan's motives and his standards. By the way, I'm amazed at how many of these principles I'll be talking about emerged in the songs and the the readings here. Isaiah 14, verse 12 to 14. How art thou fallen from heaven O Lucifer son of the morning how art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations for thou hast said in thine heart I will ascend into heaven I will exalt my throne above the stars of El I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north I will ascend above the heights of the clouds I will be like the most high I'm going to emphasize that I will be like the most high Rebellion seeks equality and they'll look for ascendancy later, but that's how rebellion operates. I just want to be equal. I, I, I just want equality. That's fair. I just want equality. That's fair. And that reading we had from number sixteen—boy, that was a bullseye. Where Korah wanted to share authority with Moses and Aaron. I just—it's—I just—it's fair. Just want to be equal. That's fair. You know, there's some religions out there that teach you are I don't want to use the name. They're saying you're divine now. If you ever met somebody like this, it'll it'll singe your eyebrows. There's people who think, yeah, you're divine now. Here let's take a look at Yahshua's theology. The evil one says, Go ahead, eat that fruit. Learn about good and evil on your own. Go ahead. You'll be like the Almighty. We're going to take a look at Yahshua's theology as spelled out in the New Covenant Scriptures. Being like Yahshua is the closest you can get to being like Yahweh, and it's as close as you need to get. Step one is to receive Yahshua. In John 1.11 it says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Well, that's a disappointment. But as many as received him, emphasize received, to as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the children of Yahweh, even to them that believe on his name. You look up that word received, and it, it isn't merely like a postman putting an envelope in your hand. It, it means to seize, to like grab him. Yeah, you've got to receive him. and Be his disciple. You have to dedicate yourself to service to be like him. Yahshua said in Matthew 23, 11, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Back up to that. Oh, I want to underscore that some. Now, he brought this up a number of times, but the one that was most compelling for me was the night he was betrayed. And you've got to put the evangelists together to get the whole story. For in, in the book of John, he shows how he... Um, he, he washed their feet. He took off uh, an outer garment, and he got a basin, and he washed their feet. And he says, I'm your master, and I'm washing your feet. You guys are supposed to be serving each other. But if you look at another evangel, you find out that at the Last Supper there, they were arguing over who was greatest. And this was a constant area of controversy amongst them. Who's the greatest? Who's going to sit in my, at his left and right hand? He says, you guys missed the point. You're supposed to be serving one another. Want to be great, you gotta serve. And when the cool thing about his theology, the cool thing about his economy, is you don't need a college degree, you don't need to be great, you don't need to be tall, you don't need to be strong, you don't need to be smart, you just gotta serve. Anybody can enter into that divine nature by dedicating themselves to service. And I know when the phone rings or a letter arrives or someone comes to, to your presence. And they have a need. They need to be served. When needs emerge, I know what it's like, friends. I know it's a nuisance. It's an aggravation. It's an interruption. But when our mind is in the mind of Messiah, you don't, you, you don't take it that way. So I'm going to spend a moment and tell you what it's like. Suppose somebody rang you from the city with authority and they said, listen, The utility man was out there the other day, and he found a big treasure under your backyard. We did some research, and we found that treasure is yours. You can keep it. By law, you can keep it. When you have opportunities to serve, that's what it's like. It's like getting a confirming phone call from an authority figure. Hey, you got a lot of money coming your way. It's so often opportunities to serve are not recognized. This is Yahshua coming to you in disguise. Opportunity to serve your spouse. Opportunity to serve your family. Opportunity to serve the fellowship. Opportunity to serve others, brothers in the faith. Opportunities to serve at the feast. Opportunities to serve your fellow man. They're all over the place. It's like money laying all over the place, but you don't know it because if you're not thinking like Messiah, it'll go right by you. And I know how hard it is. But that's Yahshua's theology. If you want to be like him, which is to be like Yahweh, you think service. For those of you who are thinking of coming to the feast, uh, please sign up on that volunteer sheet. Help out around here. There's plenty to do. And we have fun doing it. And many hands make light work, don't they? Step three in you know, Yahshua's theology. Now, this is the last one I'm going to give, but I don't mean to say that there's only three steps. I'm just saying these are the three I included today, and that is to enter the path of spiritual growth. Now, this is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 through 7. Through which he has given us exceedingly great and precious promises, so that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also in this very thing, bringing in all diligence, filling out your faith with virtue, and with virtue knowledge, and with knowledge self-control, and with self-control patience, and with patience piety, and with piety brotherly kindness, and with brotherly kindness love. Now friends, I don't know why he put them in this order. I hope someday to find the mind of Messiah to figure out why they're in this order. I want to draw your attention to the parts I put in red. He invites us here to be partakers of the divine nature. There's also that statement there, to escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. That takes you back to the Garden of Eden. When our our dear mother Eve, well, she wasn't called Eve at that time, but when, when our dear mother saw that fruit, she wanted that. Ooh, I like, this looks good. This is to be desired. The corruption that is in the world through lust. Boy, everything comes down to desire, doesn't it? James reveals, through James, Yahweh revealed, that all conflict comes through desire. Somebody wants something, somebody affected by that desire raises a flag, and now you've got a conflict. But that is participating in the divine nature, that list there, 2 Peter 1, verse 4 through 7. <clears throat> Let's take a look now at the shortcut of Simon the sorcerer. He thought he could buy the gift of the Holy Spirit or the ability to impart the Holy Spirit. He thought all he had to do was put money on the table. A lot of businessmen think that way. What does it cost to, to solve this problem? What does it cost to get what I want? Acts 8, verse 18 to 24. I think this is the last long passage I have in the notes. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of Elohim may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of Elohim. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray, Elohim, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, note this, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, pray ye to the sovereign for me that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. I want to underscore those words, thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now the next few slides have some very serious theology in them. so I'm going to ask you to try to follow and it may even get a little painful thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity now Simon the sorcerer's shortcut was money he thought he could just sort of buy his way into this power and uh, we instinctively know that money can do a lot in Ecclesiastes 10.19 it says A feast is made for laughter, and wine maketh merry, but money answereth all things. That's right. You can throw money at problems. You can throw money at your desires and make things happen. Money talks, right? Throw money at it. We see that in the commercial world, the business world. But for Simon, there was much for him to overcome before even thinking of operating in the ministry at that level not that term gall of bitterness he was damaged by some past experience something made him bitter and then the bond of iniquity he had some moral weakness there so this is where it gets kind of heavy in my experience observation and research this is me talking now damaging experiences cause people to look for healing at any price Self-help, witchcraft, guided imagery, ritual. I knew some guy up north who was still grieving over the loss of his dad, mixed feelings about some of the abuse he suffered. And he, uh, he wrote a letter to his dad and left it at the cemetery. Didn't do him much good. It made him feel good for a while, but it didn't do him much good in the long term. But people who are hurting will look for answers. I mean that some people are dealing with pain from things that are indescribable and there's a statistical likelihood that that's happened to some of the people in the sound of my voice some people come to us damaged hoping for a miracle and some of that turns into bitterness and some of that turns into moral weakness i'm not going to be recommending that you stop anything you're into to deal with the pain that you've had in your life. Some of, you have, have, some of you have been dragged through canyons of humiliation. All right, Some stories I know about. Others are out there. I don't know who you are, but you're in the sound of my voice, so I'm going to invite you to look at this with me through Yahshua's eyes. I'm not qualified to tell you to stop anything you're doing. It could be counseling. It could be something that Yahweh doesn't want you to do. I'll leave conviction of those matters to the work of the Holy Spirit. But I am going to tell you to abide in Yahshua's words. And I want you to do this for a while. And let me know. Any of you who might come to the feast or correspond, let me know uh, how this is working for you. Abide in Yahshua's words. In John fifteen three, he says, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And his words are like that. They drain away evil. His teachings do that. They drain away evil. And there are people who have no interest in the faith. They, they hear Yahshua's words or they read those words. Read them out loud. They, 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 they come across even stronger. People who, who have no interest in the Hebrew roots of the faith or the faith at all, they say, man, this guy is great. He's a supreme ethicist. He's, he's the real deal. A lot of people don't know this. Mahatma Gandhi, that uh, activist from India, he walked around with a copy of the Sermon on the Mount in his pocket. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light so for those of you who are dealing with indescribable pain scars that are hard for others to understand I want to hand you off to him he says his words clean you he says he's a healer Well, he always says he's a healer And he promises you rest. Now, there's a time and place for everything. Our study of the law, the prophets, and the wisdom literature will never end. But I'm saying, turn to his words, receive him, and become like him. And see how that works. Furthermore, remember that the greater the injustice, the greater the potential for participating in Yahshua's nature. Let's think about this. He did nothing wrong. In fact, he did a lot of good. A lot of sacrificing. I'm convinced one of the greatest sacrifices he did was praying for people because praying takes time, doesn't it? The greater the injustice, the greater the potential for participating in Yahshua's nature. I've heard that women have no problem identifying with Yahshua and asking themselves, what would he do? And using that as an example, But for the suffering and the afflicted, I don't know if they understand how much he went through. After all he endured as an innocent man, our master was executed naked. If there are times you feel that you were damaged in some very humiliating and crushing ways, uh, just remember that he suffered extraordinary, horrible outcomes there, not having hurt anyone there are no shortcuts in view here. Entering into Yahshua's glory, his nature, his existence, his viewpoint, will likely take time and discipline. Funny thing about Yahshua, you know, I've, I've been looking around to see if there's an exception. Lots of philosophers out there, lots of teachers. And I could talk for a while about things that distinguish Yahshua. One of them is that he has a long history of prophecy anticipating his coming. There's nobody on this planet in all of history that has such a long prophetic schema in anticipation of his arrival. But there's something else too I found about Yahshua. Whereas most teachers will hit upon some good points, have some good philosophies, Yahshua is distinguished in that he he seems to be warning you You get mixed up with me, it's going to be hard. You know, the politicians say, vote for me and it's going to be easy. Yahshua says, join yourself to me, it's going to be hard. He talks about carrying your stake daily. I don't know any teacher who says that. Come join me, it's going to be hard. For those dealing with bitterness from past experiences, I want to bring to your attention... Yahshua's first command in the book of John. I'm not saying it's the first command he ever gave, but the first command in the book of John is in John 1:43. He says, "Follow me." And the last command in the book of John, he says, "Follow thou me." John 21:22. The healing and restoration of your soul depends on following him. There's no shortcut here, but the healing begins with obedience. Now, this is what I'm going to tell you now is something that people in the know, observant Bible students, will tell you. The faithful obey. Faithful people obey. And obedient people, they believe. And they feed on each other. Obedience and faith feed on each other. His primary command is to follow me. Now we're going to move on to other topics. But what I wanted to speak to here was the spiritual shortcut that to enter into the divine nature, it not, doesn't come down to experimenting with right and wrong. It's not as simple as eating a piece of fruit. It's not as simple as buying a book and putting it on your shelf and pretending you read it. It's not as ma- a matter of throwing money at it. Now, we're called disciples because we are learning a discipline. Let's talk a little bit about shortcuts in industry. <clears throat> in Proverbs 19.2, it says, "...also that the soul be without knowledge." It is not good, and he that hasteth with his feet sinneth. I want to underscore that he that hasten with his feet sinneth. When you're in a hurry, you're probably going to commit a sin. When you're in a hurry, you're going to cut corners, you're going to fudge, cover up, you'll be bypassing safety and quality standards. I've asked engineers over the years, "What's the hardest part about our profession?" Um, you guys know I'm an engineer. Consistently, my fellow engineers say, the hardest part is that we're not given enough time to do the job right. When I was in China having a, a lunch with those uh, Chinese engineers, it was a very memorable lunch. This is authentic Chinese food. And I ordered vegetables. The guy next to me had some kind of a stir-fried rice dish. I'm not kidding you. It had baby lobsters in there. They looked like little toys. Baby lobsters in there. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. But he said, oh, yes, he said, the hardest part is we just don't have enough time to do everything. And this leads to shortcuts in industry. I can't resist acknowledging Brother Roger trying to tell me years ago, Brother Mike, the commercial world has got so many corrupt people in it, so many cheats. And how many of those cheats are based on shortcuts? Okay, we're going to look at one area. There's just so much of this. I'm going to look at one area with you, which is product recall. The question is, what's the hurry? I'm going to put that question out there as you look at these product recalls. Now, I'll tell you about a little hobby I had. I used to go to uh, department stores, and you'll find a, a cork board on a wall somewhere where they post up product recalls. And I remember a jumbo fraction of those recalls were children's products, baby products, Sometimes it was a majority of the things stapled to the cork board. Product recalls for safety for children's products. And I wonder what has got into these people. They just This has been going on for decades. I wonder what's in their hearts. Why are they in a hurry? Why couldn't they make the product safe after all this time? Now, If you want to find these uh, materials on your own, you can go to www.cpsc.gov Slash recalls. That uh, CPSD stands for Consumer Product Safety... C? I don't know what the C stands for. Consumer Product Safety Committee or something like that. Dot .gov. Slash recalls. We're just going to look at a few and see... Uh, oh, yeah, I wanted to emphasize. He did hases with his feet sin. Here's one. I, I, I blocked out the names of the companies. All right? But This company here makes starlight's that are recalled due to fire and electrical shock hazards. How did this get out the door? Look at how many of these star lights. It's a decorative item. The lights lack adequate minimum wire size and overcurrent protection, posing fire and electrical shock hazards to consumers. Look at the bottom, how many have been out there. 50,000 of these are swimming around out there. Here's another one from July of this year. Another company recalls home accents holiday artificial Christmas trees due to burn hazard. Happy holidays, huh? Sold exclusively at Home Depot. Christmas trees foot pedal controller can overheat, posing a burn hazard. About 99,000 of these are swimming around out there. Another company, this one blew my mind. At this point in history, there's no excuse for this certain company recalls a ball activity toy due to a choking hazard. Now that thing there, some of you may be just to- tapping into me through audio outreach, but it looks like a bunch of loops of plastic with hearts in them, and the loops. What happens is that thing can pop apart, literally just pop apart, and those parts become a choking hazard. 22,100 of these are swimming around out there. How did this get out the door? Were they in that big of a hurry? Oh, we got to ship this. We got to make our money. This one hurts. It was released in July of this year. I mean, they got records going way back. I, uh, in, in doing some research for this, I have an item that I was going to sell on the internet. Some of you know I'm liquidating some stuff I came in the possession of. And I was trying to look up the price of it, and I found a product recall for something that goes back to 2011. That's how I found this web page. This particular company is recalling a bassinet due to fall and entrapment hazards. A child, a baby's bassinet. There's about 3,000 of these out there. Now, I look at the picture, I think I know what they did wrong. When I look at this, I think I know what they did wrong. And uh, if I was on the engineering team, would would they fire me for raising a flag? This may be the last one. I'll just mention one other one. What got me into this decades ago is when I just happened to look at that product recall board and I saw a child's playpen. I'm not going to say any more than I have to, but this playpen had the uh, proclivity for collapsing in such a way that two opposite walls of the playpen would collapse inward. I'm not going to say any more. Okay, just imagine what that would do to a child. They have the two walls collapse inward. I see some of you are giving me a grimace. Yeah. Why are they in such a hurry? Why don't they test this stuff? Why are they in such a hurry? In all these cases, investments of time would have prevented the problem. What's your shortcut? Shortcuts in industry. Shortcuts in commerce are iniquitous when they offload duty and responsibility to an unsuspecting customer. Some shortcuts create resentment because they, are, they, they represent a change in the rules of an ongoing relationship. Have you ever had like a relationship with a business entity or an institution and suddenly you can't find anybody to talk to? They laid people off. They fired people. They want to get more efficient, you know. <clears throat> And where you used to go to an office or call a particular number, now you go through a process. How about banking e-statements? They don't want to send you an envelope anymore. They're trying to be efficient. I get these emails that your e-statement is ready. Well, I still have to log on. Let's talk about call centers. Boy, there's an area of evil for us. The term phone jail was was invented around the mid-'90s where you, you call a telephone number to get help. And you pick the option you think is closest to what you want, and you wind up in a loop where you can't get out. You're just picking all these options. You never really get a human being. Call centers, there are peaks during the day where a lot of calls come in and valleys where very little calls come in. And if they staff to keep, um, to, get to answer all the calls, then you wind up in the valleys with a lot of people sitting around with nothing to do. So they say that's inefficient. So what they do is they offload the problem on you. And then you are put on hold if you call when there's a lot of calls coming in. Now you're on hold. Your time has no value. The problem has been offloaded on you. What I do is I put them on speakerphone and I I just keep puttering around my office until somebody picks up. Now some of the better ones, I'll tell you how long you're going to hold. They'll say your current wait time is approximately one hour and thirty-nine minutes. You just say, "Okay, I know what I'm in for." Here's another shortcut. How about that silly spare tire they put in the trunk of your new car? In the old days, they gave you a real spare tire. Today, they put a little piece of baloney around a, it looks like a frisbee. <laughs> and there's your spare tire. It has a limited velocity. I purposely put this in 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 you see? Oh, it shows up real good on the screen. Production in quality, provisioning, and functionality of products. Here's an example. Javon alerted me, too. Some new cell phones are coming out, and they don't include a charger cable. Now, think about it. The charger cable might cost them a, a dollar. They sell 10 million of these phones. They just save $10 million. They're offloading the acquisition of the charger cable to you. Shortcuts and evasion, they're all over the place. People giving you shortcuts. Oh, I just remembered one. I wanted to put it in the notes, but I, I, I didn't get around to it. In high school, my buddy worked on the weekends painting houses. And the guy he worked for, he would tell the customer, you're going to get two coats. You get two coats of paint for this price. And then the customer would watch, and they're painting the outside of the house. And when he's all done, the guy only put one coat on. Now, how does he get away with that? He promised two coats, but he only put on one. A customer would complain. He says, Oh, you got two coats. What happened is I put on one thick coat. Okay. Okay? A shortcut. Everybody would resent that. Now come on, those of you who've painted, you know why two coats is advisable because of streaks and areas you might have missed. And if you're only going to put one coat on, even if you call it a thick coat, there's still the possibility you're going to create uh, bare spots and streaks and things like that. We're sh- going to start talking about shortcuts in society. Yahshua was deemed expendable. Well, let's just get rid of the guy. That'll solve our problem. The religious authorities were afraid that Yahshua was going to start a rebellion and draw the swords and spears of the Romans upon them. In John eleven forty nine to 53, and one of them named Caiaphas, Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, you know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spoke he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Yahshua would die for that nation. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. Yeah, let's just, we'll get him killed and our problems will be over. This is related to scapegoating, which I'll be talking about in a bit. Some of the shortcuts we see in society, mob rule, group assumptions, false accusations based on snap judgment, social pathologies that employ labeling. Okay, let's look at some of these social pathologies. I want to to crisp definitions. For racism, I went to dictionary.com. I'm going to zoom into definition number three. Hatred or intolerance of another race or other races. That's racism. Hatred or intolerance of other races. Okay, that's a sin because it's hatred. Let's talk about bigotry. Bigotry is stubborn and complete intolerance of any creed, belief, or opinion that differs from one's own. Bigotry has nothing to do with race. It has to do with ideas. Prejudice. An unfavorable opinion or feeling formed beforehand or without knowledge, thought, or reason. Let's summon Proverbs eighteen thirteen. He that hear, pardon. He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is a folly and shame unto him. I've been a victim of this. Somebody renders an opinion they don't have all the facts, <clears> or <throat> they think they have all the facts. You'll find this is a problem amongst the wicked when you can't reason with them. They don't want to talk. They don't want to review the facts. Because just for me, I I think everybody should have this attitude that at any time we should be challenged and be able to verify what we believe, why we see it that way. I don't ever want anyone here to get weary when we hear the ministry give sermons on basic theology, basic doctrine. I can take you into the past and introduce you to congregations that forgot why they're keeping Sabbath. They forgot why they did everything because they were not being refreshed on basics. We should be willing at any time to review what we believe, why we believe it, why it's so. We might find ourselves adjusting the knobs a little bit. Let's talk about racism, shortcuts in society. Now, there's a famous school teacher. Who fought racism with mixed results how many peer have heard of Jane Elliot and the blue eyes brown eyes experiment I see about six seven hands go up the day after Martin Luther King was assassinated was a Friday morning and this gal uh, was really tore up about it and she decided to do a thing called blue eyes brown eyes with the kids she invented this on the spot so here's how it goes on day one she opened the class and declared that blue-eyed children are inherently bad. She just blurted it out, blue-eyed children are bad. And she pounced on them verbally. She got the rest of the class to join in. She used ostracization and told them to avoid blue-eyed kids in the schoolyard. She took every remark the blue-eyed children said and twisted it around. She had them wear blue armbands, and she made them sit in the back of the class. She made some lies about uh, demographics and biology. Blue-eyed kids are inherently dumb, things like that. And I saw, there's a lot of videos about this. The, the first one I saw, you could see the kids were, the blue-eyed kids were really downcast. They were really sad. And um, it worked, you know, it um This thing about taking every one of the remarks, this is something that you you, will see in the world around you. It will bother you a lot. Suppose a child says, I'm not bad because I have blue eyes. The teacher says, see, now you're rebellious. The little blue-eyed kid asks a question for clarification. She says, you blue-eyed kids don't pay attention. Now i got to take time and answer your question. No matter what these kids did, it was always wrong. Have you ever heard of how Satan is the accuser of the brethren? Ever heard that? Seen that passage? But it is possible to isolate people or groups or individuals and say, you're bad because. And then you put a label on them. Now, day two was a Monday. She turned it around. She said, I was wrong. It's the brown-eyed kids who are bad. So she reversed everything and did the same thing to the brown-eyed kids. And some of the blue-eyed kids... (laughs) Turned around, and they, they, some of them got revenge, you know, and being mean to the uh, blue-eyed kids. Uh, but the ta- on the whole, the taunting and bullying were less intense than on day one. But at the end of day two, she stopped the experiment and told them what she had done. Now, it was a successful classroom experiment from, from the standpoint of her objectives. She talked about racism and judging people based on color, which is good. But there was some damage to the kids. They were wounded by this. And there was mixed reaction back then and today, too. One of the problems with the experiment is she never got the permission of the parents. So she's playing with the mind of these kids and not coordinating with the parents. I'm going to let other people debate its usefulness and propriety for now. But I do want to underscore the isolated kids felt isolated and damaged from the mob experience. It was a mob experience, turning one group of people against another. And their grades and effectiveness were affected during the experiment. It's amazing. Those who were told they were bad and dumb and stupid, they scored poorly that day. And it's funny, the kids who were told they were superior, they actually scored higher than they normally would on exercises and quizzes. Now, her her webpage is there. I don't endorse her. Later in her life, she became like this expert, and she got kind of smug and self-righteous about it. You can find that out for yourself, I suppose, or let me know I'm wrong. And it's at janeelliot.com. Elliot is spelled with two L's and two T's. And talk a little bit about my neighborhood experiences and racism. I'm not an expert on race relations, but I know more than most. Um, as a little boy, I remember moving into the neighborhood where my cousins lived. And um, on the way walking to school that first morning, my cousins were talking about how a black family moved in recently and the night before their garage was burned down just because they were black. That was my first experience. Now, I was just a little boy, and I knew this was wrong. Uh, I moved, after that, I moved to another neighborhood that was largely black. My poor mom in the 1960s, she could only afford housing in what I would call changing neighborhoods. A lovely family there just received me. Never made any mention of the fact that I was white but the, I will always treasure how that family uh, treated me. Uh, uh, so if you're out there, I was in the locus of 71st and Carpenter on the south side of Chicago. The nice kid named Junior uh, befriended me. We, uh, I never saw this kid before. I was roller skating on the sidewalk back and forth. And he came up and roller skated with me back and forth. We started racing each other. We didn't even know each other's names. But we laughed and had a blast. And in the words of my dear friend, Sister Lucille, she says, when you really care about somebody, color doesn't register. It doesn't doesn't even go in your mind. And you don't keep tallies of this stuff. You say, oh, this is my Chinese friend. Uh, This is my Mexican friend. You don't think that way when you really care about people. I moved back to the previous neighborhood where my cousins uh, uh, used to live. Actually moved into the apartment they occupied and there was a kid upstairs, I'm going to call him Mickey. And uh, his, his mom was a single mom. Sometimes Mickey's dad would come by and see him. I don't know if it was a divorce or not, I don't know. But uh, Mickey's mom was remarkable. All these silly stereotypes, you just got to get to know people. You really, they really have to spend time with each other to get to know it. Mickey's mom was studying to be a lawyer. And I don't know how she did it. You know how girls back then used to carry books? Today everybody's into backpacks. Remember women used to carry books like this? <laughs> I can still see Mickey's mom at night coming with those books in her arm to be a lawyer. I remember the night she got uh, a t- her TV repaired. These are lessons I needed to see. This, th- these people, were they look different than me, but they're just like me. The, the first TV show she saw after the TV was repaired was the Beverly Hillbillies. I, 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 I can't think of a time anyone laughed harder than her watching the Beverly Hillbillies. And now that I know what she went through, how hard it is to be a mom and all the other things, hearing her laugh lightens my soul to this day. I'll tell you the most cruel thing I saw in all the neighborhoods I lived in. Um, I'm going to tell you that in a moment. Um, this revolving door thing where... I saw what it was like for the first blacks to move in, and they got beat up. And then when we were among the last of the whites, we got beat up. And I don't mean in some cases physically, in some cases through harassment. I've seen it from both sides. It is so pointless just because of somebody's color. What a shortcut. Oh, I see you're a different color than me. I don't have to think anymore. I know all about you most painful thing i saw was when mickey got into an argument with another boy in the neighborhood by the way that kid he might have been living in that house with the garage burned down now that i think about it but um mickey is arguing with this lad in his home and i was there at mickey's side in this other kid said the following he said at least I live in a nice, fine home. I don't live in some cheap apartments like you do. Of course, while this argument's going on, I'm thinking, remember, I'm a kid now. I'm thinking, oh, well, that doesn't carry any weight. Uh, I live in the same apartment building as Mickey. Uh, that doesn't make you win an argument. But you understand, in the mind of someone who's childish, they think that the cut of your clothes or the neighborhood you were raised in these are like important things. Let's go back to Yahshua's theology. Who's gonna be the great one? It's gonna be the servant. Doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, any of this stuff, color of your skin, nothing matters. To have a servant's heart, you're the boss. And Yahshua's eyes, you're the greatest. That was the most painful thing. The whole scene was based on race, and it's incredibly stupid. I might talk about more about this later. Let's talk about mob rule, another shortcut. Uh, Dr. Milt Rosenberg of Chicago uh, and that great radio show he used to have, he explained how uh, mob rule works, the mob, members of the individuals in the mob will surrender their conscience to, to the leader or to the mob itself. They just shut down their conscience. I cannot think of a single case where mob rule works. Exodus 23.2, Yahweh's law anticipates this. You shall not follow a multitude to do evil. This comes under letting others do your thinking for you. Yes, mob rule works in all the wrong ways. We are in an age where we are all bound to the opinions of experts, and they often let us down. Experts can lead us to Folly. Who are these characters? Psalm 1 verse 1 warns us, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the wicked, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. There are people today who theorize. And one of the reasons Hitler got such a following, he didn't have a majority behind him. A lot of people don't know this, but he entered into power with less than a majority. But the things he talked about spoke to the hearts of what some of those followers really wanted to hear. Blaming the Jews for all their troubles. And you can see these people, little daddies and moms and kids going into the concentration camps. You think, you're going to tell me those people hurt Germany? You know, it's funny, if if Germany had treated the Jews properly, they might have won the war. Let's talk about mob rule. We're going to talk about Saul Alinsky, his Rules for Radicals book. Now, modern activists follow a a lot of his rules, but there's two I want to underscore. One of the things Saul Alinsky said in his radical, um, extremist book is ridicule is man's most potent weapon. He says there's no defense. It's irrational. It's infuriating. It also works as a key pressure point to force the enemy into concessions. I wasn't bullied as I moved around. I was picked on a little bit. I wouldn't call it bullying. It just took a while to work my way in. But I've seen kids bullied where the whole class or a group within the class pounces on one guy and he can't do anything right. He can't say anything right. And he just becomes an object of ridicule. This is foreign to the spirit of truth. By the way, let's go back to Jane Elliott. If those children had been taught the messianic ethic, they would have destroyed her experiment. If just one of the kids said... I am made in the image of the Almighty. None of us here are bad. The whole experiment would have been shut down. But maybe Jane Jane Elliott would have liked that outcome. Because Yahshua's ethics, his appeal to all men, uh, is universal. And it shuts down all this foolishness. But uh, Saul Alinsky also says, pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. Cut off the support network and isolate the target from sympathy. Is any of this uh, ringing a bell for you guys right now? Go after people and not institutions. People hurt faster than institutions. I've seen this in real life. I've seen it in families. I've seen it amongst social groups. I see it in politics. To isolate and marginalize someone and pounce on everything they say and do. Bad, 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 bad. And they just don't let up. And by the way, in Saul Alinsky's book, he has a special acknowledgment to Lucifer. He uh, he acknowledges Lucifer as the first radical. It gives you an idea of where his heart and his mind was at. We're going to talk about mob rule in the movies. We're going to go through this fast. These are movies that I'm recommending to you. It's funny, but the Brother Eduardo talked about a film the family saw several times. It looks like it's movie day at... Uh, YRM, where you see dramatization of biblical principles played out. One is Lord of the Flies. Okay, A group of choir boys are stranded on an island. They form two rival groups. The good guy, Ralph, forms a group based on common sense and reason. Uh, this kid in the movie, he, he sounds like a, a British gentleman. But the bully named Jack forms a group based on power and coercion. The bully's group gains members over time... And they become savage and even commit a murder. Ralph is finally isolated and must flee for his life while the island burns. The movie's about an hour and a half long. It's described as a shocking hit. How many people have seen this film? i got to know. I know I've showed it to some of the guys here in the fellowship. Yeah, I'd strongly recommend the 1963 version. I, don't, I can't recommend the new one because I, I hadn't seen it. But... Um, Here's the chant they repeated endlessly when they hunted pigs or when they hunted that isolated boy, Ralph. Kill the pig, cut his throat, kill the pig, bash him in. It dramatizes this business of taking somebody you see as an enemy, isolating them. And there's no thinking. There's no thought. Just bypass the whole thing. We're going to isolate this guy and destroy him. The film has a terrific ending. Here's the oxbow incident starring Henry Fonda. A murderous cattle rustler is on the loose, and an old military man forms an illegal posse. They're going to find the guy who's been stealing cattle. He murdered a cattleman. They're going to go find this murderer. They take a vow to follow whatever the majority decides, and this gives the posse the color of law. One of the town magistrates says, Promise me it's going to be legal. And the guy looks down on him and says, I can only promise you that I'll follow the majority. Well, it turns out this same guy stirs up the majority to lynch the guy. They catch a man, and based on circumstantial evidence, they hang him. And this guy begs for his life. He says, I didn't do it. Just give me a fair trial. I just need time to, to, to mount a defense. You'll find that I didn't do this. He begs for his life. He says, you've got to believe me. And uh, they decide to hang him anyway. Now, you might accuse me of doing a spoiler here, but the, 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 everybody knows the outcome of this film before they watch it, okay? I'm speaking rhetorically, but you just know this is not going to have a happy ending. The power of the film comes when you uh, find out what he wrote to his wife before they hung him. He wrote a letter to his wife. And Henry Fonda has to go back into the bar. All these guys know they did the wrong thing, and he reads the letter from his wife. And the buildup is worth it. Then there's 12 Angry Men, one of my favorite films. I show these films to friends whenever I can to cause them to think about righteous things. A jury is impaneled to decide the fate of a Latino boy accused of murdering his dad. The evidence for guilt is overwhelming. It really is. It really is overwhelming. And on an initial vote, most people vote guilty. But one guy votes not guilty, Henry Fonda again, and without a shred of evidence to back up his not guilty vote. And then he forces them to talk about it. I can't give you a full course on evil here, and I don't want to. But I hope you're scared to death of the evil of those who don't want to talk. they You can't get through to them. They shout you down. They'll outvote you. Now, in this case, at least you have the law in your hands. One man can veto an entire jury. A jury has to be unanimous in their conclusion. But there'll be cases where you'll have to stand alone. And you won't have the law behind you. You won't have a majority with you. You might not even have a lot of evidence. And you're going to have to say no. I cannot in good conscience go in this direction. Terrific film. Mob rule works in all the wrong ways. I cannot think of a case where the outcome of mob rule is good. You shall not follow a multitude to do evil, Exodus 23.2. You can't let others do your thinking for you. Now, this is more of a personal note. I don't want to abuse the privilege I have of being up here. But I have been in these situations where friends and or relatives have confronted me. And they've been impatient with me because I won't jump on their bandwagon. They want me to hate a group, hate, hate a, a cross-section of society. And there are times when I've stood alone versus friends and relatives. I say, no, that's circumstantial evidence or that's one case. And uh, you'll find this even today. Uh, You're going to be impatient with me on occasion. You might send me a link or a Facebook post, and you want me to click yes or thumbs up. And I'll say, wait a minute, I don't think we have all the facts here. In some cases, the initial expectation is true. We have famous murderers like uh, Richard Speck in Chicago, John Wayne Gacy, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, where, yeah, the, the facts did support our expectations. But the majority of the time where I've been put upon to make a quick judgment on something, look at this bad thing that happened. Get on the bandwagon with me. I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't have all the facts. And by gum, there is other angles to the thing. There are other facts. I'm not going to jump on that shortcut of joining the mob rule, getting on the bandwagon with them. Yeah, so who are these experts? Experts who sometimes induce us to think this, feel that, go this way. One thing that bothers me in today's culture is that I'm not allowed to get angry unless I have their permission to get angry. we got a lot of riots and protests right now about the cops, all right? We got protests about justice in the streets. Well, yeah, there's some areas that we got to fix, fix up. But I don't see any protests about adultery. Ad- adultery is probably the most destructive thing I've seen in my space in the course of my life. We don't see protests about fornication. Psalm 1.1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the wicked, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. From whom do you draw your opinions? Who are you getting your information from? How are they packaging it up? How are they skewing it? In the end, now I'm going to hit a really tough point. In the eyes of some experts, there is a new type of sin which I am unable to repent of. I cannot see this sin, and I will never be able to shake it. Can you guess what it is? Can you guess what it is? They say I'm racist because I'm white. I wonder how many have heard this theory. It's been around since the 1980s. If you're white, you're automatically racist. Automatically. And uh, you try to say, well, I'm not racist. What What? What do you mean? I'm not racist? And just like Jane Elliott and her experiment, they'll say, hey, you're being rebellious now. You see? Or you're not being honest with yourself. So here's how we settle this. In the household of faith, we have protection. If any of you are trafficking in this evil the- uh, this evil theory, you should repent of it now. Because you are limiting Yahweh. You're telling me I have some sin that the Holy Spirit cannot show to me. And only you, who are you experts are out there, you think that... Uh, just because of the color of my skin, I got this sin. Okay, I reject that. Uh, I'm racist because I'm white. But there's people out there saying that. I don't know if you, some of you are looking at me like you're puzzled. But you hit me because you haven't had to deal with this. And they redefine racism. They say, well, I can't be racist because I don't have power. But racism is all about ideas toward others. <clears throat> well, we have no time for racism here. If I have a sin, the Holy Spirit must convict me of it. The key ingredient in all these examples is time. No time for discussion. No time for data gathering. No time for analysis. No time for a fair hearing of the facts. Ship the product. Render an opinion. Form a mob. Lynch the guy. He looks guilty. No time. No time. There's one thing I've got to warn you about. An evasion. When time is allotted, sometimes they use evasionary tactics. This panel here in the photograph was uh, on TV about a little over a year ago discussing live abortion where a child, a baby survives an abortion procedure, and a parent wants to still kill the baby. This is utterly hideous; this is murder. everybody knows it. The guy on the left of your, of your screen, Dinesh souza he's he 's lobbying for the preservation of these children 's lives. The girl on the right hand side of the screen she 's saying, "Well, we should have more education." Uh, we should have more conversation about unwanted pregnancies. We should have more discussion about this. So these are people who take the time you allocate for discussion, and they go off into la-la land. Okay, so that's an evasionary tactic. Okay, here's a, a spot on no shortcuts allowed. Education. You've all been very patient with me. I'm so grateful to you. Let's look at the Bible. Daniel was in training for three years. Yahshua took three and a half years to train his apostles. Secondary school or high school takes four years, and a full college degree takes four years of very hard work. Very hard work. There's no shortcuts to education. And uh, they won't reward... You might find a teacher to reward your laziness, but the real world won't reward it when they find out your degree was not earned. Now, this is not the same as training, where a narrowly defined skill set is imparted to a student. That's where you get these one- and two-year certificates. But even then, an apprenticeship period is essential. There are no shortcuts in education. We are all susceptible to this. I'm going to close with a, um, a little less silly anecdote. We are all susceptible to this, including me. Um, I was in Jeff City a few weeks ago, and I heard a crash, a light crash. I looked up, and I saw a big old pickup truck with all kinds of American patriot stuff painted all over it. Maybe you've seen pickup trucks decorated like this. American flag and eagle, something about the Constitution. It was all red, white, and blue. Very very striking, very Americana. And the, the, the driver backed into a vehicle, and the, and the lady in that vehicle, she got out and she was black. So I thought, okay, it's, a, it's, it's an American, middle Missouri redneck, <laughs> and this black lady getting out of the car. I says, I don't know if I want to watch this. Because cause right now we're going through a lot of tension in this country, aren't we? Well, the guy opened the door, and the guy got out. He was a black guy. Okay. And so I was I was pulled into the stereotypes too, wasn't I? I thought, uh-oh, there's going to be some, some white guy and a black lady, and it wasn't. But it shows to go yeah. It goes to show you that uh, we all can fall for these traps and we have to fight them. Yahweh looks on the heart. We want to be like him. We want to look on the heart. Shortcuts are making big decisions. Snap, guesswork, snap judgment, asking Yah for signs and fleeces. I've warned you about this before. The aha moment is simply a call for further investigation. There are leaps in logic where we have shortchanged ourselves, the pleasure of coming to a confident decisions. And these kind of things... Are hindering that too. Here's your takeaways. We we're just about done. Improved efficiency is an important value. Shortcuts made to save time and resources often at the expense of others. These would be examples of brutal efficiency. Shortcuts are often deceitful, giving the impression of freed up time and imaginary leisure. Uh, shortcuts are based on labeling prejudices, bigotry, and racism, are sin. In the path to messianic character, the divine nature is a path of pain, growth, and challenges. Yes, give yourself to him. He'll lead you. And accept no substitutes. I'm so grateful for you sitting through all this. Uh, Yahweh bless you, friends. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.